0: At this time, we're gonna continue our fall vision series. If you have your Bibles, turn to Acts chapter three. At the very heart of our church is a desire to see revival in our own hearts and also to see awakening in society. We are just passionate about the presence of God and we wanna see a move of God in our generation. I've been specifically praying for that for 12 years now, that God would would move in our generation And this series is all about how we can position ourselves for a move of God and what a move of God looks like. So we've kind of talked about how to position ourselves, now we're moving more into what it will look like. And we're using the book of Acts as a guide as it records the story of the early church which was the greatest move of God in history as the church exploded onto the scene of the first century world. And for the last couple weeks we looked at Acts 2 where the disciples were baptized in the Holy Spirit And Peter got up, he preached the gospel, and 3,000 people gave their lives to Christ in a single day. I'm praying for it here. Come on. 3,000 people in a single day. And, And we've seen that for us to see a fresh move of God in our generation, we need to be a people of spirit and truth. You see that right there in Acts 2. They were open to the Holy Spirit, not just open, eager for the Holy Spirit, and then Peter preached the truth, and as he preached the truth, people were set free. We need to be a people of spirit and truth. We can't choose one or the other, and oftentimes we try to, but we're going to hold those two things, spirit and truth. And, and we need to seek the power of the Holy Spirit. We need to preach the gospel. And now we're going to skip to chapter 3 and verse 1 to see how moves of God in the church should lead to God impacting society around the church, okay, and impacting people. So let's look and see what it says. In verse one, it says, Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour, and a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up. And immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him. And all the people... Wait, where are we? And all the people saw him walking and praising God and and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what happened to him. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people utterly astounded ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. All right, so the sermon title today, if you're taking notes, and I hope you are, you gotta take notes at 8.30, you gotta stay awake. All right, the impact of the next move of God. That's the sermon title. Let's pray over it. So, Lord, we thank you so much for your word, and we pray that this morning would not be uh, just my ideas or or something I came up with, but that this would be a demonstration of your spirit's power. Holy Spirit, we invite you to move and to speak in the ways that you want to speak to this congregation. So, God, we thank you and we love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. A few weeks ago, I told you the story of the Moravian Pentecost, and to to refresh your memory, and... In 1727, the spirit was poured out on a group of religious refugees at the village of Hernhut in modern-day Germany. And out of this, the Moravians, that's, who, that's what they were called, they started a 24-7 prayer movement. And, and, and that lasted for 100 years. And they ended up sending out thousands of missionaries to the ends of the earth, even though the congregation never reached over 300 people. And two missionaries even sold themselves into slavery so they could reach the Caribbean community of St. Thomas. That's the kind of commitment to Jesus and his mission that they had. In 1736, so this is nine years after that initial outpouring of the Holy Spirit, a couple of these missionaries found themselves on a ship crossing the Atlantic to come over to the American colonies in order to do missions work here. And they were joined on that ship by a 32-year-old Anglican minister, John Wesley. Let's show a picture of John Wesley. Another great-looking person. All right. He was on his way to do, Ameri- or to do ministry among the Native Americans, but he was struggling as he wasn't even born again yet. Right? He wasn't even saved, and he was a minister. And one pastor I listened to this week called him a bit constipated. Okay? So that's what we'll say about John Wesley, just struggling. On this journey, a great storm broke out and everyone is losing it. They are terrified for their lives besides the Moravian missionaries. They are calmly praying and singing to Jesus. And John, this Anglican pastor, he's embarrassed by his own lack of faith. And he ended up having a miserable time in America. And when he left two years later, he was completely depressed and still not born again. Upon arriving back in London, he started attending a Moravian Bible study. He was impressed by their faith on the ship. He's like, I'm going to be a part of a Bible study by the Moravians. And during a reading of Martin Luther's commentary on the book of Romans, he said that his heart was strangely warmed. Okay, he was born again. God did something in his heart. He finally understood the gospel and encountered the love of God for himself. He was born again. In late 1738, the Hernhut community, or he went to the, her community the moravian community the original one and was discipled by the leader there and he learned about 24 7 prayer and then later that year he ended up having an all-night prayer meeting or attending an all-night prayer meeting at this place called fetter lane on new year's eve in london and at that prayer meeting george whitfield was there his brother charles was there and about 60 other people were there At about 3 a.m., I'm telling you, 3 a.m. is the best time for a move of God. You wanna see God move? Stay up till 3 a.m. At 3 a.m., the power of God came down with such force that they fell down before the Lord. And out of that move of God, uh, the world as we knew it changed. George Whitefield, he ended up heading over to America and joining Jonathan Edwards in the first Great Awakening here. We talked about that last week. And then John and Charles Wesley, uh, they led the British or or the Wesleyan Great Awakening over in Great Britain, at the time, hear this, at the time, only 5 to 10% of people were attending church in Great Britain, only 5 to 10% of people, which is a little bit more, or it's a little bit lower than it is now in Great Britain, and we consider Great Britain to be a very post-Christian nation, right? And this shows that there have been worse times, right? We often think we're in the worst moment in history. It's not true. It's not true. There have been worse times in church history, and 50% of Anglican churches, which the Anglican church is the state church there in Great Britain, 50% of Anglican churches did not have a pastor, okay? So only five members of parliament were Christians. Now there's much more. There's many more members of parliament there that are Christians. And the Wesley's, they began to pioneer a grassroots movement within the Anglican church that eventually spun out into Methodism. We see the results of Methodism all around Iowa, right? Every town you go to, there's like a Methodist church there. And this movement spread like wildfire as they mobilized ordinary people to become church leaders. They, they pioneered these flexible models of ministry that have become so normal to us now, like small groups in homes. And this was unheard of back then. At the same time, they boldly talked about sin and they called people to repentance. Over time, more and more people gave their lives to Christ and were discipled and raised up for ministry and the church multiplied. And what happened in the church, is spilled out into the streets, and it radically impacts society. And and one article I read this week said that, or said that Wesley practically changed the outlook and even the character of the entire English nation, right? One move of God and a man and his brother, it led to the changing of the entire English nation. And for example, one of the people who was impacted and discipled by John Wesley was a man named William Wilberforce. He led the charge in Parliament to, Abolished slavery, right? He was impacted by this move of God. Slavery gets abolished in Great Britain through that. Also, many believe that the reason that the British monarchy still stands today and the reason why they avoided something like the French Revolution, which was crazy. If you know anything about history, it was bad, not good stuff. The reason why that was avoided was because of this move of God. And, and several people who would change or change the world were touched through this movement. And that includes people like William Carey, who, who's considered the or the founder of Modern Missions, and George Muller, who led this amazing orphanage in, in Great Britain, and Florence Nightingale, who's, who's the pioneer of modern nursing, and Hudson Taylor, who's the great missionary to China. right? The church is exploding in China today, partially because of Hudson Taylor going there. And also William and Catherine Booth, who, who founded the Salvation Army, were touched through this move of God. Get this, at Catherine, Booth, or Catherine Booth's funeral, there was more people there than at Queen Victoria's funeral. Come on, somebody, yeah. right? That's the kind of impact that this move of God had on society. And by 1835, so this is 100 years after the initial outpouring at Federal Lane, by 1835, 55% of, Britain, of, of the British people were evangelical Christians, right? So Bible-believing, born-again believers, 55% in 100 years. Before, it was 5 to 10%. Now it's 55%. That's what happens when God gets a hold of people. In this move of God, it radically impacted society. And as we grapple with the, de- or with the decline of the Western church and, and the decline of the West in general, I'm praying that God moves in such a way that the church is not only revived, but society is awakened. I'm praying that as we get right with God, as we do business with God, as we are impacted by his love, that it would spill out into the streets and change our friends, our cities, and our society. And this is what happened with the early church. This is our example in the book of Acts. After the Spirit was poured out on the day of Pentecost, the church was thrust outward to change people and families and cities. We see this right away in Acts chapter 3. They were freshly baptized in the Holy Spirit. Their hearts were full of God's love and God's power. And what God did in them could not stay with them. It couldn't just stay in them. It had to go out from them. I wanna unpack this story to see how a move of God in the church should lead to people being impacted outside the church. Okay, let's look at the first four verses. It says, now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour, and a man lame from birth was being carried whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms, and Peter directed his gaze at him as did John and said, look at us. Okay, so they were going to the temple, you know, going to pray like they always did. And they notice a lame man who was was likely there every single day and he begged for money just like he always does, typical thing, right? And Luke tells us that that Peter didn't just walk by that man, right, he's there every day, didn't just walk by him like he normally does. Instead, it says that he directed his gaze at him. And the Greek word for directing his gaze is atanizo, which means to fix your eyes on or to behold steadfastly or to look earnestly. So Peter, he's beholding this man steadfastly. He's looking earnestly at him. He sees the man, right? He actually sees him. And do you ever experience that when someone's making eye contact with you and it just feels like they're looking into your soul, right? Like one of my mentors does that. It's like, I'm sorry, whatever I did, I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, this eye contact was intense here and, and that's what's happening. Peter. He truly saw the man. He looked into his soul. He didn't just see another beggar, but he saw a person who God has a plan for and God has a destiny for. He saw a person filled with untapped God potential. And this reminds me of what Paul says in 2 Corinthians. I wonder if Paul was thinking of this story when he wrote this. It says this in verse 14 through 16. He says, for the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that or that one has died for all, referring to Jesus, died for all, and, and therefore all have died, and he died for all, that those who who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake was or who for their sake died and was raised. And from now on we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. So Paul, he's saying here that the love of Jesus controls him. Controls him. Another translation is compels him. Okay, so, or so the love of God compels him outward to the world. And we see this principle that, that when we experience God's love, it should compel us to give it away to other people. It's a natural overflow. If you love God, you're gonna love people. And John, in his epistle, he says, if you don't love your brother and you claim to love God, you're a liar, you don't really love God. If you really love God, you'll love your brother. Okay, so Paul then says here though, he says that Jesus has died for all and because of this, because he's died for us, we should live for him. If that's the proper response. If the son of God, the one who created the cosmos, if he could give up his life for you, how could you not give up your life for him and for the world? And then he follows this in verse 16 and this is the part I really wanna get. He he follows this by saying that because of this, or because of this, we should not regard humans according to the flesh. In other words, we shouldn't look at people in a trivial way. And we should see them with a heavenly perspective. And we should see them as God's image bearers. If we can get this perspective, if we can truly see people, it will change the way we interact with people and will help what God has done in us to go out from us. You know, part of the reason why I think we can get so angry at people in traffic and online is because we don't really see people, right? The separation of the vehicle or the separation of the screen, it dehumanizes people. And we don't see God's image in them. It's much easier to be angry at someone when you're not actually making eye contact with them. So Paul, he calls us not to look at people from a human point of view. He calls us to resist this urge to dehumanize people. In a generation that is fixated on on dehumanizing and canceling people, we have to resist that urge. Right? We must see people from God's point of view And this is what Peter and John model here. They didn't just regard this beggar according to the flesh. The Holy Spirit had so deeply moved within them. You know, the life of God is in them that they couldn't help but be so full of love for this man. They couldn't help but just really see him. So here's the thing. When God moves in us, we have to lovingly, we should lovingly see people, actually see them. I have a dear friend named Drew Meyer who pastors LifePoint Church in Ames. He's an amazing man, and and one of the first times I interacted with him was at a summer camp. He was the Chi Alpha director at Iowa State University at the time. And I was a sophomore in college from you And I, and we were both there promoting Chi Alpha. And we had about five minutes before we had to head on stage to promote it. And we'd only met maybe one time before, hardly talked. And he asked me to share my story with him. I can still play this in my head. We're outside at this campground. I began to share my story with him. I shared how Jesus had had reached down and saved me when I was at my lowest point. When I was down and out, he, he came and touched my life. And as I shared, I'm telling you, this is like the one minute version of the story. So not, you know, super moving. As I shared his eyes fill up with tears. I'm like, who is this person? I just met you. And this is crazy, but your eyes are filling with tears, dude. His heart was so tender. And he saw me so deeply that he felt what I felt in that moment at my lowest point, but also rejoiced with me and what God had done in me. He was overwhelmed. He was in the moment with me. And the love of God had done such a work in Drew that he couldn't help but see me from God's perspective in that moment. I want us to be a church who sees people like Drew, or Drew saw me and continues to see me. And as Peter saw the beggar, here's the thing, when God moves in us, his love has to thrust us outward to see the people around us who are lost and hurting, and need Jesus we got to let the love of God flow through us two people after Peter and John saw the man they asked the man to look at them as he did they were probably a little shocked at what happened next says this in verse five and he fixed his attention on them expecting to receive something from them but Peter said I have no silver and gold but what I do have I give to you in the name of Jesus the Messiah of Nazareth rise up and walk So Peter, he wanted to give him something more significant and lasting than money. He wanted to heal him of what got him into the poverty in the first place. He boldly tells him to get up and to walk in the name of Jesus. He knew that the name of Jesus had the power to restore this man's body. And to us in the West, this idea of a name having power is kind of strange and weird, but in the rest of the world and in the first century, this is a common idea. Many believe that, or that names can summon hidden forces. And Luke is showing us that the name of Jesus has power that we can't see with our eyes. Although Jesus isn't on earth anymore, his power and his authority is still flowing through the church. Just mention his name and there's no telling what might happen. And Peter knew the power of Jesus' name firsthand. He saw Jesus do mighty miracles. He saw Jesus raise people from the dead, feed the 5,000. He walked with Jesus. And now he was filled with the spirit of Jesus. Right, the Jesus that he saw moving in Galilee, he was filled with that same spirit. He was filled with the Holy Spirit because what happened on the day of Pentecost, he now had the power of Jesus in his body. And when he approached this man, he couldn't help but call on that Jesus and use that power, he couldn't help but engage that broken situation. When God moves in us, uh, the natural outflow is we will boldly engage people with the authority of Jesus. A move of God in us should lead us to be bold and to walk in the authority of Jesus Christ. When we see broken bodies, we should command them to be healed. And when we see broken people, we should confidently share the gospel that restores. And when we see darkness, we should extinguish it with light and when we see signs of hell, we should push it back with the kingdom. We should not be afraid of people or brokenness but should walk in the power that Jesus has given us. When God moves in us, we start to see people and we start to engage them with boldness, with a holy, humble boldness. And there's something else to notice in in verse 11 that always strikes me deeply when I read this. It says, while he clung to Peter and John, all the people utterly sound ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. It says that after the man was healed, after he had gotten in praising God, doing the jig, whatever, doing the worm, just seeing if you're awake, he clung to Peter and John. And the Greek word for clung is krateo. And this means to hold fast to something or to see something. So this man, he, he seized Peter and John. He held fast to them. I love this image, a new disciple clinging to more mature disciples. When God moves in us, it should move us to let people cling to us. Our work is not to have one-off moments with people. It's not just to get people to pray a prayer of salvation. I love the sinner's prayer. I love doing that, but, it, but that's not the primary work. It's to walk with people as they grow up into Christ's likeness, it's to actually disciple people, which is to help people become like Jesus. After we see people and engage them, we or engage them, we may need to let them cling to us for a little while. And we need to patiently or patiently walk with people and actually teach them how to follow Jesus. I love how Paul described his ministry to the Thessalonians. It says this in First Thessalonians 2. It says, But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of our own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, right, not only the word, not only truth, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. So Paul says that his ministry and his ministry companions ministry was was gentle with the Thessalonian church. They were like nursing mothers taking care of their own children. Got a little baby right here in the front row, right? There you go, my baby right there. So nursing mother caring for her children. During worship, Emily keeps looking back at, at Lily. Is she okay? She's still sleeping. I'm like, Emily, what are you looking at? You can't look at people during church. During worship, can't look back at people. She, I'm looking at Lily, okay. Right, that's a nursing mother taking care of her own children, checking on her. Are you okay? <clears throat> Paul says they were affectionately desirous of them. They shared not only the gospel of God, but their own selves because they had become very dear to them. When God moves in us, we don't just lovingly see people and we don't just boldly engage people. We will patiently walk with people and we'll give our lives to walk with people and help them grow up into Christ's likeness. When God moves in us, we patiently walk with people. It should cause us to do that. The love of Christ compels us to actually do life with others and guide them. Our church has been or been built on this philosophy. Eight years ago, we were starting, or kind of restarting Kyle at the campus of and I I was the campus director. I knew like one person that was coming in as a freshman, John Griffin, he's playing drums this morning. He's now uh, actually one of our board of elders, or he's one of our elders. And I knew him from, from growing up in Cedar Rapids, and I knew he lived in Norn Hall, so I showed up at his dorm. He wasn't really passionate about Jesus, kind of been in church a little bit. I, I sat on his beanie bag chair, he had like a headset on and like 18 screens around him just gaming, <laughs> shared, you know, shared about Kyle. invited him to come to for that Thursday night. He came to Kyle, gave his life to Christ. As he says, this is the way he said it, I remember it. He said, I knew that this was my life now. This is it, this is my life. Okay, here's the cool thing about John though, right? So, or so me and John, we patiently walked together for, you know, we're still walking together, but you know, we've had our moments, ups, downs. We've walked through life together. He even yelled at me in a Starbucks once in front of other pastors. He didn't yell at me, he just scolded me for not challenging him more. He shared that story on his own sermon. So I'll let you listen to that. Go back to John's sermon from January. Anyways, side note, I'm not bitter about it, John. I've forgiven you. But uh, <laughs> so, uh, but patiently walking with John. And what's been cool is John has done that for other people. And one person he's done that for is Noah Ruchte right here on the front row. So Noah gave his life to Christ in 2019. And John took Noah under his wing and did the same thing for Noah that I did for John. And now Noah is our youth pastor, right? But here's the thing, you can't grow up into maturity. I, I, I don't think to the fullness of it if you don't have someone who's walking with you. And I want us to be a church who says, we're gonna walk with people, right? The, I believe the kingdom, it bursts into the earth, not in like these dramatic worship services, although that's important and all that, but it's as we commit to the day in, day out work of discipleship, when God truly moves in us, it causes us to give ourselves to this patient work. Acts 2 type experiences, here's the thing, Acts 2 type experiences should lead to Acts 3 type demonstrations. Hear me? Like experiences like that in Acts 2, you're filled with the Holy Spirit, it should lead to going out into the streets, seeing people restored. When God moves in the church, it's not supposed to stay in the church. It's, it's supposed to spill out into the streets. It's supposed to push us to lovingly see, to boldly engage, and to patiently walk with people. When God moves in us, he must then move through us. When revival comes to the church, it should lead to awakening in the streets. This is the dream. I wanna circle back to verse seven through 10 though, to see what happens when God moves through us and what happens as he touches people. It says this in verse seven. It says, and he took them by the right hand and raised them up and immediately his feet and his ankles were made strong. So after God moved through Peter and John, this man was able to walk, right? His feet, his ankles were made strong, never walked and them, lame from birth. His feet and ankles were made strong. And I believe this is a beautiful image of what happens when God moves through the church into society. When God moves uh, through us, out of that, uh, there should be restoration flowing, right? When God moves through us, restoration flows. And we see this in all great moves of God. When the church comes alive, then restoration naturally flows out to people, families, and societies as we have fresh eyes to see, as we have a fresh boldness to engage and as we have fresh patience to walk with people, out of that restoration springs up all around us and we begin to see the poor and the oppressed. We begin to push back injustice. We begin to help the lost be found and we see things like the ending of the British slave trade or racial racial reconciliation at Azusa Street or immorality pushed back in, in the 1730s in New England. We see those types of things happen Revival in the church will inevitably lead to restoration in society. As God moves in and through the church, restoration follows. And as people and societies are restored, joy and wonder inevitably follow as well. It says this in verse eight through 10. It says, And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with him, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder. I want to see that in our generation. People filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. When this man was restored, he couldn't help but rejoice. Right? He couldn't help but but be exuberant in his praise. It says this in Isaiah 61. He's experiencing Isaiah 61. It says to grant to those who mourn in Zion to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, and the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit. Beauty took the place of ashes in this man's life. Joy took the place of mourning and praise took the, or took the place of depression. And as he was filled with joy, the people looked on with wonder at what was happening. How could this happen to this man? How could he be healed? What in the world is going on here? Right? Wonder and joy in the streets should follow revival in the church. When God moves through us, joy and wonder spill into the streets. And this is what I'm contending for in our current cultural moment. Over the last several years, people have been brought down by COVID and political tribalism and unrest and economic burden and wars abroad and depression and anxiety. I want to see a revival of joy in 2023. Think about kids who are seniors in high school, right? How much, how much of their life has been spent in COVID and lockdown, those types of things? Like, like the proportion of their lives has been spent in this type of environment, I wanna see them experience joy. I wanna see them filled with wonder that God can move in our generation, right? But it depends on us, the older generation, to, to actually be right with God so we can pass that down to them, right? I want them to be filled with joy. I want joy and wonder to be unleashed in our society. That's what we're contending for. In the presence of God, there is fullness of joy. Joy is on tap, right, when God's presence is there. And that's why it's so important for us to be a people who are right with God and filled with him so we can bring that joy and wonder to our society. Here's the thing, the, the restoration and joy of the people around us depends on us letting God first move in us. Before we can give love away, we need to first receive love. You hear me? Before you can love, you have to experience love. Before we can give restoration and joy, we need to be restored and full of joy. And For the first several years of his ministry, John Wesley tried giving something away that he didn't even have, right? He's like, be made right with God. It's awesome, I think. And it wasn't until after his heart was strangely warmed and the spirit was poured out on Fetter Lane that he was able to bring restoration and joy to his society. If we wanna bear spiritual fruit that rocks our society, we must first be rocked by Jesus ourselves. John 15, five, I am the vine. This is Jesus talking to his disciples just before he's crucified. He says, I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, apart from Jesus, you can do nothing. If we want spiritual awakening in the world, we need to first experience awakening ourselves and we first need to abide or remain or be with Jesus ourselves. We need the love of God poured into our hearts. With that in mind, has God poured his love into your heart? Has your heart been strangely warmed? Have you let the gospel touch you like it touched John Wesley? Has the Holy Spirit filled you like he filled William Seymour at Azusa Street? If not, why not today? Right, why not today? And we talked about the pathway to receiving this or this type of outpouring from God. We talked about this way back in week one. And here's the thing, we can't make God move, right? We can't make him do anything. But we can hoist up our sails, so to speak, and seek to catch the wind of the spirit. And we saw how we can do that, how we can prepare for a move of God in Hosea chapter 10. It says this, it says, sow for yourselves righteousness and out of that reap steadfast love. Break up your fallow ground for it's time to seek the Lord that he may come and rain righteousness upon you. If you want to prepare your heart for a move of God, if you want God to touch you, sow righteousness. Repent of your sin. Don't hang on to it. Instead, pursue holiness. Get right with God. Don't let sin hang on to you. Away with it. Right? Jesus' blood is enough to forgive you. Right? That's good. But here's the thing. We're not going to tolerate sin. We're going to kill it. We're gonna do whatever we can to kill it because it saps, or it zaps our joy, it zaps our fruit, it zaps our intimacy with God. We're not gonna hang on to it. I'm never gonna tell you, hey, hey your sin, it's all good. Keep doing it because the love of God is on tap. No, when you experience the love of God, it's gonna cause you to be holy. It's gonna cause you to repent of your sin. And if we want to, to see a greater outpouring of the Holy Spirit, we need to do away with sin. We need to pursue holiness. And as we do that, we need to break up the fallow ground of our hearts as well. Okay, so the fallow ground, this idea of like a hard, hard ground, and you're trying to take a plow to break it up, right? So that's what we need to ask God to do in our hearts, because our hearts can get really crusty and hard and cause us to be kind of wonky at times, and we need God to break that up and and tenderize our hearts. And, And I think one of the best ways to do this, we'll talk about this in the last week of the series after Thanksgiving, but I think one of the best ways to do this is to forgive those who have hurt you. If you have bitterness in your life, it's gonna be really hard to receive something from God. Jesus said himself, he said, if you don't forgive, I'm not gonna forgive you. Now, I think his forgiveness is great and and he's got a lot of grace, but I'm just saying, those words, that's what he said. If you don't forgive, I'm not gonna forgive you. So what bitterness are we hanging on to as we come into this place this morning? We're trying to worship Jesus and there's all this bitterness. We haven't forgiven a brother or sister. We haven't forgiven someone who's hurt us. If you wanna break up the fallow ground of your heart, you gotta forgive, you gotta figure it out. And if you're struggling, say, Jesus, I wanna forgive, help me to forgive. Sometimes it's a process, but, but you gotta come to him and say, Jesus, I want to, I want to forgive this person, help me. And as, as it happens, your heart will become tender and the fallow ground will be broken up. And then, seek the Lord, right? It's time to seek the Lord. That's why we got the prayer room twice a week. Come on, twice a week time to seek the Lord. You can do it on your own time as well, but there's something powerful about corporate prayer. I encourage you, seek the Lord. Commit to prayer. Ask him to rain on you. Start fasting once a week. Do something. Say, God, I'm serious about seeking you. Right now, the world is waiting on the church to be revived. It's desperate. You see all the issues in the news. You can trace it back. It's caused by a lack of fire and power in the church. The church is supposed to be salt and light in the world, right? We're supposed to preserve the world. Salt, the idea of preserving meat and those kinds of things. We're supposed to preserve the world with our lives. We're supposed to be light that pushes back darkness. Darkness can't stay in a room when the light's been switched on, right? And we're supposed to walk into dark rooms and bring the light of Jesus Christ. If you wanna look at everything going on in the world, don't get mad at the world, or don't shake your face, ah! It's all those people out there. It's us! We've tolerated sin. Right, we've said, "Hey, hey, go ahead and be prideful and hold on to your sin. Do your own thing. You know, you can do Jesus just on Sundays and that's all good. It's all good with us as long as you come to our church and drop some money in the bucket." Just saying. Right, we've tolerated sin in the church. We've tolerated half-heartedness. We've tolerated apathy. Right? If we want to see the world restored, we got to get right. We got to stop tolerating sin in the camp, right? And I'm not saying we condemn people. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying we're serious about our own sin, right? You're serious about your own sin. You're bringing it before the Lord, saying, Lord, help me to be humble. God, help me to stay low to the ground. God, when I don't want to go to the prayer room, help me to want to go to the prayer room, right? I have some weak desires. Help me to be more desirous of you, God, right? It's that humility, that hunger before the Lord. It's that desire to grow. That's what the world is waiting on. Before anything can happen outside these walls, something has to happen inside these walls. Something has to happen in our hearts. If we want God to move in the world, we must ask him to move in us first. And for the last several weeks, I've been beating the drum of wanting to see a move of God in our church. And today I'm talking about how it should spill out to society. But again, it comes back to us. Has God moved in you yet? Have you experienced restoration and joy? And what in the world is standing in the way of that? Because it ain't Jesus. He's eager to restore you. He's eager to bring joy. He came to bring life and bring life to the full, but you gotta come to the end of yourself, right? When Peter, the man we see here, you know, getting someone up from the ground that's been lame his whole life, when Peter encountered Jesus, what did he do? He fell to the ground. He said, depart from me, I'm a sinful man, right? You gotta come to the end of yourself for God to use you. Have you come to the end of yourself yet? If you do, it's the best thing you ever do. Coming to the end of yourself, coming to a place of humility before the Lord and hunger its the best place you could ever be. In that space, God brings restoration and joy and life. So today, do you need to repent? Do you need to forgive a friend? Do you need to commit to prayer? I don't know what it is, but whatever it is, let's do it because society depends on it. So the next move of God must move us to impact the world. It must move us to impact the world. This is not about us primarily. It's about reaching the world who's lost and dying and needs Jesus. Our prayer is that God would move so powerfully in us that it would just spill out. It's like an overflow of love. As he pours love into us, it just kind of goes over our cup and flows out into the streets. Come up, Jay. On Friday night, we celebrated our church again becoming a Thomas Church, and, and really, it was a beautiful night for our community. It felt like a milestone in our journey as a church. There was so much joy in the house. I was shocked. I was like, "These people are going nuts for Jesus right now." But it was also for me. It was a milestone in my personal journey with Jesus. You know, 12 years ago, Jesus got a hold of my heart when I was at my lowest point, and then He filled me with the Spirit. Ever since then, my prayer, like. like and when I got baptized in the Holy Spirit, I said, Lord, this can't stay in me. What you're doing in me, it's gotta go through me. And I was, I still am, but I was such an idiot back then. So many issues I had to work through and continuing to work through. But I just knew if God loved me this much, then it has to spill out to other people in my imperfect way of trying to give it away to other people. I've always wanted to be my ministry and or I've always wanted this whole thing to be an overflow of my relationship with Jesus. I've always wanted, like, like, like when you guys aren't around, like when just me and Jesus, that would be my most you know, powerful times. Not like up on the platform here, it's like, like oh yeah, yeah, no. Uh, those times in my office alone with the Lord early in the morning, that's what I've, i i wanted that to be the bedrock of this church. I wanted it to be an overflow of this, of the love that Jesus has poured into my heart. And so many people have joined me in this endeavor, first at Kai Alpha and now at St. Church. And this whole church, this whole thing is an overflow of the love of God. It's the outworking of what happens when Jesus touches hearts, and not just mine, so many other hearts, John and Noah and Casey and Derek and, and Matt Morgan and Becky Murphy and Dan Brinkman, right? Just the love of God pouring into people, pouring out to others. It's the result of God moving in people like you and me, right? It's not us like Striving, trying to push something out or build something on our own. It's just God's love pouring into us and then out to others. My prayer is that the overflow of love that has resulted in the fruit that our church has seen already would would continue to spill out into the world. And that's why we're doing a miracle offering next week, guys. It's not just to give you to, or to get you to give an offering. It's because we love the world. We wanna see the world touch and there are people going to the ends of the earth, fighting human sex trafficking, people in our own community that are helping uh, our pregnant teen mothers or people with unexpected pregnancies. There's people like doing things around the world to bring the love of Jesus and, and we wanna help them. That's why we do anything we do. It's just a just love of God flowing through us out to the world. So let's ask God to keep touching us and filling us with this love so it can spill out. So this morning, I think my big ask for you have you experienced the love of God? Because again, it starts with that. And I believe the Lord wants to do that. He wants to, or the Holy Spirit wants to pour God's love into your heart this morning. He wants to move in you and then through you. He wants to make beauty out of ashes in your life and then use you to make beauty in the world, right? He wants you to bring hope to the world. Allow him to do this today, right? Receive his love. You're not waiting on God to do it. God, he he wants to give you his love. He's waiting on you. He's waiting on you to come to the end of yourself. Come to him, receive that love today, and then give that love away. And make a commitment. Say, God, what you do for me is not gonna stay in me. If you could love me this much, I can't help but give that love away to others. If you could forgive me at my lowest point, how could I not forgive those who have hurt me? If we can all do this, we're gonna bring joy restoration to our cities we're going to see dead things come to life all around us and we're going to see spiritual awakening in our day all right, let's stand to our feet all across this room let's respond to Jesus this morning I'm going to give you a couple ways to respond today <clears throat> okay so the first thing is let's go ahead and just you close your eyes wait on the Lord here and if you just need to receive God's love today just like a fresh download I think that would be all of us but If you want to receive God's love, can you just put your hands out in front of you? Just kind of open up your hands in a posture of receiving. Let's ask the Lord to pour his love into our hearts. So Lord, right now we come to you and we ask you to to do something only you can do. We can't force this. We ask you to pour your love into our hearts as, as Paul talks about in Romans 5. Holy Spirit, pour love out. It says in John 1, Jesus, that you came to bring grace on top of grace. Grace on top of grace. That you'd pour that into us right now, Jesus. God, for those dealing with shame this morning, maybe they're they're, uh, just feeling guilt and shame over something they did this week. I pray that they would repent, but then out of that, Lord, that you would pour love into their heart. I pray that your kindness would lead them to repentance today. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Thank you, Lord. God, for those who just feel inadequate, feel like they could never be used by you, I pray that you would encourage them that you wired them the way that you did on purpose and you have a plan and a destiny for their life to make an impact for the kingdom. Jesus, pour your love into our hearts. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. You can keep your hands out in front of you if you want. I, I wanna do another prayer. of just asking God to do something through us. Yes, Lord, right now, Lord, I just pray that you would, Help what's poured into us to go out from us. Lord, help us to be a church that is ferocious in our commitment to mission. Lord, help us to not get caught up in the things that, that churches can get caught up in that are distracting from your mission. God, but help us to be thrust outward towards the world that needs you. We thank you, Jesus. All right, if you want to respond to God today, and come to the altar. Also, prayer teams up here, Marcus and Katie, will be up there to pray with you. I want to encourage you, if you want to give your life to Christ, if you just need a download of love like we talked about, or you want to be used for mission, you know, there's some time here to seek the Lord. So let's do that together. All right, we're in worship for one more song here.